This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. The House of Islam is on fire and the arsonist still lives there. That's the provocation lying at the heart of a new book by Ed Hussein. Titled The House of Islam, A Global History, the book serves as both a highly readable account of the history and development of Islam in all its diversity, as well as a clarion call for a need to reclaim the religion from the more hardline and, you might say, uncompromising iterations that have spread out from countries such as Saudi Arabia. As well as being an author and expert on geopolitics of the Middle East, Ed Hussein is co-founder of the UK anti-extremism think tank Quilliam Foundation, and it should be noted, is also a practising Muslim. Ed is in Melbourne for the Melbourne Writers' Festival and joins us today in the studio. Welcome to Triple R. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And like all religions, I guess, Islam is diverse. There are a lot of different ways that a Muslim person might choose to live their life, depending on their experience, where they live, and I guess the particular version of Islam they might adhere to. But broadly speaking, what is it, I guess, that you're concerned about in terms of the, the trend you've seen in Islam over, let's say, recent decades? You've hit the nail on the head, Dylan, in terms of that diversity within Islam that was the norm for 1,400 years is now being slowly eradicated. Uh, One form of capital T truth is being imposed on Muslims all around the world that unless you're a very Saudi-Arabized, very literalist, confrontational type of Muslim that has a very rigid interpretation of scripture, the the old colours of India, of Africa, of the the, the Ottoman Empire being eradicated. And uh, I fear for the future of Islam if we continue to go down that road where the, the, the inherent pluralism and diversity of Islam is wiped out by by, by Saudi money, uh, then we'll end up with with a form of Islam that's very bigoted and dark and closed and, and, and not the kind of open Islam that we saw in the past. I, I'm not whitewashing Muslim history. There were periods of confrontation and there were periods of war, as there were with almost all religions and civilizations. But at its core, uh, I mean, just to give you an example, when in 1492 uh, Jews and Muslims be, were being expelled from Spain, they were uh, Jewish people in particular were welcomed heavily in the Ottoman Empire. Another example, uh, as uh, early as 1857, in contrast to Western history, the, the Ottomans uh, decriminalized homosexuality. I mean, that's a big deal to do it in 1857, mm. while we were only doing it in the 1960s and 80s and 90s. So th- there is this inherent pluralist spirit within Islam um, uh, you know, just this morning in my Quran recitation, it, it, it dawned on me that you know th- there's a very popular section of the Quran that most Muslims recite in the Kalamin al Mursalin ala Sirat Mustaqim that you are on a straight path. Talking to the Prophet Muhammad, God says you are on a straight path, not the straight path. Now, if you understand scripture and grammar, that's very important. Acknowledging there are other truths. Uh, so, I mean, you're absolutely right, Dylan. It's it's it's, it's an important scriptural and historical imperative that we keep that pluralism alive. Mm. And you do in the book speak about extremism and, and the kind of um, I guess jihadi violence that's that's gripping the, the Middle East currently. But of course, you're not just talking about extremists here, which are a very you know small minority of all Muslims around the world. But it's more, I guess, a, a focus and, and proliferation of um, the influence of a kind of literalist Salafi reading of the Quran. I wonder if you can kind of flesh that out a bit and, and explain what, what you mean by that and where that kind of mode of thinking has come from. Well, that, that's a great question. That, that mode of thinking emerged um, out of what, what we call Saudi Arabia today, but in the 1790s in particular, uh, there was a man called Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab. He was a cleric in central Arabia, Najd, uh, today's Riyadh. 
and he opposed Ottoman or Turkish cosmopolitanism in Mecca and Medina. So he didn't like the fact that men were wearing silk robes, that pilgrims were coming and allowed to smoke, and there were allegations of sexual liaisons between pilgrims. I mean, it's much like Rome today. You know, people can go and do whatever they want on an individual level. It's not for the government to come and control people's behavior. So the Ottomans for their times in the 1790s were relative progressives, and they'd seen what had happened with the revolution in France, and they, they were kind of hands-off, and they let people do whatever they wanted to. Now, this this, this cleric from Central Arabia, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab, from which the term Wahhabism comes from, uh, a hardline form of Salafism, he opposed all of that. Now, it's interesting that he, he does several things. He sees a shrine in, the, in, in Najd. He abolishes that shrine because, much like uh, English Puritans, he opposes worshipping to God at shrines. Secondly, and this is much more relevant to us, he... For 500 years, the Ottomans commanded that part of the world. There was not a single incident of stoning an adulterer or an adulteress. For for, for your uh, listeners who aren't familiar with adultery, we don't use that term anymore. You know, someone who has relationships outside outside uh, sexual relations, outside, outside marriage. Now, Abdul Wahab brings in a woman who is accused of committing uh, an offence, having sexual relations outside marriage, and then orders that she be stoned to death. And this happened in 1798. And um, he then forms a movement around the fact that this is what scripture calls for. This is what we must do. The Ottomans and the Muslim government is not doing this. So we must uphold our, uh, our, our scriptural um, uh, commands. And from that, in the very heart of Arabia, in Najd, today's Riyadh, in its vicinity, he organizes a movement that, that then marches on Mecca and Medina. Interestingly, in Mecca and Medina, the, the Qadi or the chief judge says these people are not Muslims, they're heretics, they're outside the faith for doing what they've just done, stoning and killing a woman, destroying shrines, calling for this extreme form of uh, focus on the, just on the oneness of God. And they, re- and they refused entry into Medina and Mecca. And yet he goes away, he mobilizes, he organizes his movement, does a deal with the local tribal leader called uh, uh, Al-Sa'ud, the Sa'ud tribe that then fi- finds the kingdom of Saudi Arabia a hundred years later. So it's from there the literalism comes from, that you do away with grammar, syntax, context, history, cosmopolitanism, pluralism, and you just focus on an imagined zero-year uh, form of Islam that um, we've seen Wahhabis and Salafis put out around the world. Yeah, and it has been exported from there over over the centuries since then, and um, how was that successfully exported, Ed, from being so shocking to being um, uh, quite prominent, in, in, especially in newspaper reports? We, you know, many people would have heard of Wahhabism. Yes, and um, Osama bin Laden was mm-hmm. part of that movement that then turns violent. Um, so there's a good news and a bad news element to this. The bad news is that it, it is attractive because it's black and white, it's right and wrong, it's heaven or hell. It, it avoids avoids the kind of nuanced, liberal, uh, thought-based reflection, meditation-based approach to a, to, to a world. It's, you know, when you're powered as an, empowered as an individual, you've got to think about things. But if you're being told this is the only way to do things, it has an appeal. So, And it also empowers the individual to go to scripture themselves directly and do away with uh, intermediation from... From, from scholars and history and uh, past past precedents. And so, so so there is that personal element, but there's also the financial element that Saudi Arabia was able from the 1960s down to now 
um, fund and uh, bring scholars from around the world, train them as scholars uh, from Africa, from India and whatnot, and send them back into the villages uh, to cause this kind of evangelical disruption of Islam around the world. Um, And thirdly, they control Mecca and Medina. So from being outcast and now controlling Mecca and Medina, every year, you know, millions of people go to do the Hajj, Muslims to do the Hajj. And at that point, many are exposed to this very extreme form of Islam. But they have this prestige to say, oh, we control Mecca and Medina, therefore we are the true Islam. It's like we control the, Catholic, the, the, the Vatican, therefore we are. So there's that. Now, the good news is those of us who've been opposing this extreme reading of religion for the last kind of 20 years or so were almost uh, lone voices in, in the sense that not many people would want to talk out against this extreme ex, extreme Salafism or Wahhabism because you would get no visa to go and do your Hajj in Mecca or, uh, and then see the Prophet's tomb in Medina. But now the new Saudi crown prince, while we have questions around his human rights record, has turned on this. So he's controlled the Saudi religious police from n- no longer being able to knock on people's doors and say, why are you not at the mosque praying? No longer enforcing gender segregation, allowing for music and cinemas to emerge and allowing for women to drive. Now, there's a small victories. I mean, it's not like we're supposed to say thank you for letting women drive, but at least we're seeing... uh, Indicates uh, a change. Exactly. Some progress come into a very closed kingdom. Mm. You did refer um, just before to, I I guess, the the lack of um, referring to scholars of Islam to, I guess, enable you to to, to live a more truly Islamic life and that sort of thing and to be in touch with, I guess, Islam as it it developed throughout the years and to fully understand that that history. I wonder how much social media has kind of played into that and and people going to the internet and to forums and and YouTube and so on to receive their Islamic education rather than speaking to to scholars and, and having that done sort of person to person from someone who really knows the history that's at the heart of it i mean there's something called sheikh google now so rather than going to a sheikh at the local mosque or or a sheikh who understands their faith who understood it from someone else we used to say that islam moved from the hearts and breasts of people from generation to generation that there was a lived experience that there was a feeling of what it meant to be a believer that it, it was witnessing someone at worship someone in connection with their god someone being compassionate and kind the, the quran describes the prophet muhammad as alameen as a blessing unto mankind well where is that blessing these days where is that mercy it's absent because we haven't seen it manifest in people because of the fact that we, we go straight to uh, an interpretation of scripture through google you know sheikh google now sheikh google is dominated by people who are trained either in saudi arabia or other hotbeds of literalism so i'm afraid our modern world has got something to do with with negating past traditions that have uh, a much more kind compassionate humble attitude towards the divine I mean you, you spoke about history to my mind you know Hafiz comes to my mind who's, who, who died in the year 1390 in Persia he fell in love and then he tried to communicate with the divine to cut a long story short and the entire stories in the book but but he then pens poetry about making love to God and God uh, giving birth to his soul Hafiz's soul and then turning away from it so he's in such deep angst because of falling in love with God he he writes poetry about having sex with God. Now, imagine that in today's Muslim world, or, or in any part of the world for that matter. You know, we've become so hung up with blasphemy and offence that we can't imagine things like that anymore. So here's someone in the 14th century writing in very strong Persian poetry, which, by the way, is, is still venerated by many because of, the, of the, the strong position he has. So it's that kind of Islam that we should return to, especially for Muslims, that, that honours the human spirit rather than try, try to suppress it.
Ed, Ed Hussein is our guest. We're speaking all about his book, The House of Islam, A Global History. Ed is currently in Melbourne for the Writers, Melbourne Writers Festival. He did an event uh, last night and also another one coming up tonight. And I want to talk a little bit about, um, I guess, the West's misunderstanding, I might say, of Islam and, and the way that Islam is figuring in the current dynamics within the Middle East. Because as you write in the book, uh, in a sense, with the break of, of the Ottoman, Ottoman Empire in 1924, starting, I guess, with kind of Napoleon and, and the age of the Enlightenment and, and the West kind of triumphant period, period with the Industrial Revolution, there was a great kind of humiliation of the Muslim world associated with that. And then coming after World War II, of course, there was a breaking up of the Middle East into nation states, Western-style nation states and that sort of thing. To what extent has the West failed to grasp these really nuanced dynamics that happen within Islam and the, re- and the religion and how they kind of interplay with politics in the Middle East as a region? That's a very important question, and it's something that keeps popping up on our daily news uh, feeds because we we look at the we look at the Middle East, and I, I speak as a Westerner and someone who spent time in Washington D.C. and London working on policy questions, and we expect people across the region to be like us and be rational in their calculations. But we miss something else, and that's a very important component, that the, the entire Middle East, especially the Muslim world, has been a superpower for about 900 years. And there is this kind of, like the Russians, like the Germans, a, a feeling of dignity, a warrior culture, um, that if we're not dominant and superior, at least we're supposed to be seen as equals. And that hasn't that that emotional psychological component hasn't been understood in Washington D.C., London, Brussels, and elsewhere. So what's happened is, yes, there's the Arab-Israeli conflict. We've approached both of them and said, you know, how do we come to a rational solution to this? And you know, approached like a real estate deal and said, you know, you take this part and you take the other part. But that's not how the Middle East works. There's an emotional component that's been missing and. Plato writes about this when he talks about thumos. You've got to give people the, 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 the feeling of dignity and empathy. And at the core of our under, misunderstanding, you know, whether it's the 53 coup in Iran, whether it's the Iraq war, whether it's the, the, the attitude we're taking towards Palestinians now, it, it, it's, yes, security for the Israelis, but it's also justice and dignity for the Palestinians. And that's what we don't understand, the emotional undertone to that and the humiliation you allude to lasted for almost 100 years in 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 the uh, in large parts of the middle east now bernard lewis writes about this that for a thousand years muslims were if not the superpower but a superpower for that warrior people to be now degraded you've got to at least make muslims feel that there's there's a degree of respect and and that feeling isn't there and i think that's why you see i mean for a for 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 a suicide bomber say for a palestinian suicide bomber there's everything to lose is losing his own life is losing his own home and yet they keep doing it because it's not a rational calculation and we're approaching them as rational actors. I'm not saying they're irrational people. I'm saying there's, a, there's, 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 a, there's an emotional component that's not addressed. And I think at the core of our misunderstanding is, is, is not understanding that psychological and emotional piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, clearly there's a, a big misunderstanding um, about Israel's role as well and, and what, um, in inverted commas, Muslim people think of Israel or nation states or whatever. I mean, what's your view on Israel and its and its role in the Middle East and its relations with its neighbours and its neighbours' relations with it? Where do you come from on that? On uh, on a historical level, Israel's relations relations with most of its neighbours has been negative, but we're seeing a change now, and I think that's something we should welcome. That Israel's been an outcast, and. I, 
We should also remember that Israel and Israeli people, I mean, in the Quran, they refer to as Bani Israel. Interestingly, you know, Israel was another name for Jacob or Yaqub, the people of Israel. It's a, it's a recognition in the Quran and we, we, that the Prophet Moses is referred to more often in the Quran than any other prophet. And uh, most uh, Arab Muslims, in particular, have a real problem with Israel because of the, the politics and the foreign policy of the of, of the Israeli government. Now, my my call to my fellow Muslims in the last ten years has been: you know, rise above that. Uh, we know that the, the Jewish people were in Egypt historically. We know that, that the Pharaoh expelled them. This appears in the Quran. We know that the Jewish people are the the, the children of many prophets. Uh, you know Moses, Jacob, Joseph, uh, and many others. And uh, you know, after the Holocaust and the horrid treatment that the Jewish people encountered in Europe, if they want to come back to their ancestral homeland and have a space, there's only about seven million Jewish people in a tiny land called Israel. Why not be compassionate and accepting and say, you know what? Let's have a two-state solution. Let's come to a peaceful coexistence agreement on on, on Jerusalem. And uh, but the, but the core of that goes back to the dignity piece. Right now, the Palestinians feel as that they're, they're being trod on, that they have no respect, that they that that they're treated as second-class citizens. And Israel's got to address those difficult human rights questions and win acceptance in the region. And the good news is that because of the threat from Iran, we are seeing Israel now in a position of having better relations with Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Kuwait, the Emirates, and indeed Jordan. But the real challenge is that moving and winning over the Palestinian population and ending the security threat to Israel, but ensuring that there's justice for Palestinians. So I think for all of us in the West, it's a, it's a genuine challenge to be, to, be a, to, to, be, to be peacemakers in a very difficult part of the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to ask, has that stance that you've articulated in, in this book and spoken about, has that been seen as particularly kind of controversial by, by anybody? Has anybody sort of come to you, I guess, questioning your idea for how that, that problem could, could possibly be resolved? Yes. Um, without naming names, two ambassadors of Arab countries wrote to me uh, in indignation saying this is just not right. How dare you say this? Uh, because they, they see this as um, compromising the Palestinian cause. But the Palestinian cause is about winning a Palestinian state. It's about dignity. It's about recognition. And uh, I, I'm not saying for a moment that we don't recognize that. But what I'm calling for is a, is a different approach to it, that you believe in a two-state solution, but you also Muslims recognize that Jewish people have a right to be in the Middle East. And, um, and it's, again, it's that fact-based approach. Now, whatever you want to say about the Israelis, you know, there are mosques in Israel and there are Palestinians in Israel. Now, the, the state being proposed, but whether in Gaza or the West Bank, does not include synagogues, the Jewish people. So I think it's important to have that conversation, however difficult it is for Muslims today, because I've found that you, know, you start something and it takes about 10 years to first be accused of uh, compromising and then people think about it and then they accept it and then they forget they had that first position of questioning it mm. we're seeing the same thing in saudi arabia today i mean i lived there for about a year year and a half and i have saudi family roots at first it was how dare you compromise and question the saudi government well now you're seeing the crown prince making the very changes that lots of us asked for so that's the process of change i'm afraid you've got to kind of make the first move and 
be unpopular, but over time people catch up. Yeah, and speaking of, of change and those issues of, of representation um, and, and dignity, I'm kind of reminded of the Arab Spring uh, some years ago when, when you know a lot of people in Middle Eastern countries stood up and, and demanded change at the political level. Around the West there was kind of, a, I think, a, a misinformed assumption that secular liberal style democracy was suddenly going to take root in places such as Egypt and we're going to kind of, kind of continue the great kind of Western um, progressive, uh, you know, like plan of history as has happened in, in Western states over the past 50 years or so. What's your take on, I guess, that period of time and, and will we see more agitation for change to, uh, yeah, I guess change some of those more authoritarian governments we're seeing in, in places in the Middle East? We will see more agitation, there's no doubt about that, because you cannot repress the human soul. And you can't do that for thousands of years. There comes a stage when people rebel. And we saw that again and again in different parts of the world. I mean, Natan Sharansky is a famous dissident from Russia who spent time in a gulag and wrote about the fact that uh, democracy came to uh, his part of the world in different forms. And it, it will, I mean, Japan, India. So the Western tradition has, I think, an attraction. And, and you know, I, I would... I would say that it's it's not just Western. I mean, the Greeks were influenced heavily mm. by the, 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 the Egyptians and the Persians. I mean, Martin Bernal's book, Black Athenia, talks about this powerfully. Um, and these are universal values of, of dignity. But you're right to say that in the Western-style uh, secular democracy, would that work everywhere and immediately? Um, the Arab Spring started in Tunisia. You know, I, I, my, my position was somewhat... I mean, I was in, living in the U.S. at the time and it was always assumed that you know, King George was removed and the American Revolution was successful and, you know, King Louis XVI was removed in France. So, of course, revolution is a good thing. So that was my instinct to think, oh, great, Arab Spring, at long last, we're going to have democracy in Egypt. I mean, it took me four years to realise that's not how it works. And I spent a lot of time in Egypt after the Arab Spring working and adv- advising the Muslim Brotherhood, but then also advising them to kind of embrace democracy and not abuse it. Um, and then I did the same in multiple other countries. In Bahrain, I very quickly learned that revolution and reformation has two different approaches. And for some countries, reform is more effective and some countries, revolution is more effective. And, and Edmund Burke was a thinker that really resonated with me because he supported the revolution in, 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 in America, supported the uprising in Ireland, supported the injustices that were uh, opposing the injustices that were done in India by the, 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 the East India Company, but opposed the French Revolution because he, he was able to see the consequences. So similarly in Egypt, I don't think Egypt was ready for... Uh, uh, a democratic system because there's no civil society or there's no culture of freedom in Tunisia there is and for your for your for your uh, listeners I'd, I'd, I'd encourage them to think about someone like Karl Popper who at the height of the Second World War escaped Nazism and spent about four years writing his book The Open Society and Its Enemies in, in New Zealand interestingly and he talked about why in Germany and in Austria d- d- democracy didn't settle after the First World War but it did in in, in, in the English-speaking world. So I think too often as, as liberals we assume that everyone else can have Western-style democracy tomorrow, they can't. You need to have a set of conditions and those conditions in, in, involved a free and robust civil society that, that is the ultimate arbiter and guarantor of democracy. And it's not just government and it's, it's not just elections, it's the democratic culture. Yeah, and we have the European Union and and that's having its challenges at the moment. But you see an equivalent-style Union being relevant to the Middle East. I wonder if you can talk about that a bit. I mean, people need to read your book to kind of get the full story, I suppose, of, of your thoughts here. But um, perhaps you can give us a nutshell version of what a Middle East type union could, could yes, look Claudia, like. I, I mean, I, I'm excited about this because 
you know, the, the idea for the European Union came at the thickness of the Second World War, you know, when it was thick with fog and blood. And, you know, but, but there were a group of visionaries who were able to say, you know, France and Germany can get together on the basis of trade and common policies around steel. And Now, those people worked hard, and Churchill was part of that subsequently. Um, now, I'm, I'm slightly reluctant because I, I come from a country where we've just had the Brexit vote and we're working towards <laughs> leaving the European Union, so it sounds, you know, it's counterintuitive. You can probably but, argue both sides of everything at the moment. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but I, I, I mean, I, I discount England because we're an aberration and we're an island and we're different in all kinds of ways. We're an aberration and an island too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so hence, hence a common bond of different sorts. But those people who live in continental Europe, they're not an island and they have people moving across. And similarly, across the Middle East, unlike Europe, by the way, there's a much more of a common culture there's a there are only two or three big languages that people speak across the region and for a thousand years they were a united entity and uh, and uh, almost all of the big challenges across the middle east whether it's uh, high levels of unemployment youth bulge water shortage um, uh, terrorism no one country can solve all of that on their own so i mean i make a much more policy oriented and detailed argument in the book and i'd encourage your listeners to turn to that but 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 the biggest argument is that in Europe for the last 70 to 80 years, the European Union as a peace project has worked. And there's no getting away from that. And similarly in the Middle East, unless we have a multilateral architecture to deal with these issues, because our enemies are, ISIS is called Islamic State for Iraq and Syria, not just one country. The Muslim Brotherhood's vision is for multiple states. Now, our allies can't now work just on our one country basis alone. I'm not calling for compromising national sovereignty. I'm just calling for pooling of resources. And we see that already because in the GCC, the Gulf Arab, Gulf Arab countries are working together, Bar Qatar. You see that impulse between um, the, the Egyptians and the Saudis. It, it's a call for us in the West to recognize that and be seen to be sharing our experiences of a United States of America and a European Union to help the Middle East come together rather than be seen constantly as, uh, as plotting and planning against the Middle East. Even if it doesn't come to fruition, at least we'll be seen as trying to help the Middle East rather than the current narrative of trying to undo yeah. the Middle East. And I wonder, and I'm sorry to mention the name Donald Trump at this point, but I mean, how how uh, you know how is that going with the, the kind of um, difficulties at the moment with trade sanctions and Turkey and in Iran's um, government as well? And, and I mean, how do you see it playing out now with this current... Um, kind of set of policies i suppose coming from the united states i mean sadly not 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 particularly well because while he's popular on his iran stance with several governments uh in, in arab governments in the region he's deeply unpopular because of his other stances um not least because of what he's done doing in turkey or his uh but, but the real issue for us is that, yes, Trump is bad news for the Middle East and indeed for America and for the future of the world. And indeed, the, the rise of totalitarianism and authoritarianism takes us back. But, but what I'm trying to get to is that there's, there's a much longer arc of history. And beyond Trump, what does the Middle East look like? And, and Trump's not good news. You know, he's, he's, he's bringing more damage and he's empowering authoritarians in the Middle East rather than empowering people who seek a, a more free world. But what's our vision for beyond Trump and what's our vision for beyond uh, the, the current cycle of leaders or, or the election cycles of four or five years? And I think it's it's to that, that beyond the news cycle and putting out the daily fires, we need a grand vision that, that's 
in keeping with our tradition of political unity in the West, but also helps the Middle East return to some impulse that, that, that's already there in the region, and that's some kind of in architecture and infrastructure without being too prescriptive as to how you bring the region together rather than push it further apart. And Trump's agenda is to push it further apart, whether it's Iran or you know Russia and Turkey and then Qatar. and you know He's in a position of leadership and being able to influence for, for, for good, and I, I'm afraid he's... he's yeah, and he undermines his own democratic institutions. So anyway, not much hope for the rest of the world. But I mean, speaking about election cycles and and, and so I should remind listeners, we're speaking to Ed Hussein all about his book, The House of Islam, a global history. Ed is here for the Melbourne Writers Festival. But but speaking of election cycles and I guess the way in Australia and other parts of the world, including the United States um, and the UK, I imagine, too, anti-Muslim or Islamophobic sentiment has been used for, for political gain and it is hereby sort of notionally an ethno-nationalist political party which has gained some ascendancy in recent times and you're writing about Edmund Burke in the book, kind of a, a conservative thinker really, who had issues with the kind of seminal Enlightenment thinkers such as Voltaire and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. You articulate the reasons that you respect his views is because it kind of aligns with, for want of a better term, a Muslim worldview, a kind of respect for the sanctity of, fam- of family life and that sort of thing. And you see kind of an inherent conservatism, I guess, to the way many Muslims live their life. And I was kind of wondering as I was reading your book whether the conservative side of politics, the right, has really ever understood that sentiment that, that lies within Islam. Because we see in countries such as Australia that often those nasty sentiments tend to come from, from the right, more conservative, mm. in inverted commas, side mm. of politics. Yeah. That's a very, very important and insightful question because it's... it's um, by conservative, I, I mean small-c conservative. Mm. And um, Edmund Burke, in his time, was a Whig. He opposed totalitarian monarchy. Uh, he opposed King George III. He opposed the excesses of power that the East India Company had been granted in India. He wanted liberty for the Irish people away from the, the control of... Of a, of, of a Protestant England imposing its worldview. What I like about Edmund Burke is that he doesn't shy away from God, that he embraces faith, he embraces beauty sub, uh, and the sublime, but at the same time he wants to control the checks, the, the, the excesses of both the monarchy, the nobility, the aristocracy, the religious hierarchy, and more importantly, you mentioned the Enlightenment Project correctly. I mean, that form of Whig politics in 18th century England was trying to rein in the excesses of the Enlightenment and the excesses of the liberal individual. Now, individualism is absolutely important and, and progress is absolutely important. That's the beauty I find of classical liberalism is that you, you, you respect the individual's liberty, you control and contain the excesses of the state. But Burke's relevance to the Middle East today is that the, the, the excesses that we see from the, the from the tyrannical governments and religious authorities are controlled within a small to conservative spirit. In other words, we seek to conserve and preserve the best of what we have, but we throw out the rubbish that that, that, that tries to control the individual. And in France, the reason why he opposed Rousseau and Voltaire was, I mean, I mean Voltaire, but Rousseau in particular was someone who, I mean, he had children with five different people and abandoned those children uh, to, to nursing homes. Uh, you know, he, he prescribed at a very minute level that women, once they, women, once they have the children, must breastfeed them because it gives them some kind of moral compass. So Rousseau was an authoritarian in a strange way and he wanted dedication to the state. So 
Burke was questioning all of that, and and he did that within the religious spirit without throwing out throwing out religion. So for me, Burke and the small C conservative tradition is very important for the Middle East, which is family oriented, which does believe in a wider community, but doesn't so, so far go as far as Burke has done in, in giving the individual space away from government control. So that's why Burke is important. Um, you mentioned, does the right understand that? Sadly not. And that's one of the greatest catastrophes of our time because the right here, uh, in, in your country, but also in my country and across Europe, is still hung up on that, the, the, the nationalist right. In other words, the fear of the other, the fear of difference, fear of people with a different skin tone, a different uh, sexual uh, inclination, rather than understand that what we have here is a potential for an alliance with Muslims and others who, who believe in property rights, who believe in the individual uh, uh, right to worship, who believe in God, who believe in family values. Uh, they've seen Muslims as immigrants and outsiders and, uh, and a security threat. And it's the, it's the old nationalist blind spot, the supremacy of, of, of a skin colour-based uh, nationalism. It's, it's, it's a form of retreat to old Nazism that has blinded them to some uh, much more kind of philosophical overlap. Um, so you're right to pick up on that. And I, I wish we, more, more people were talking about this because that would help solve the rise of the far right across Europe. You know, you've got 30% plus pe- populations voting in multiple countries, Austria, Germany, France, uh, and increasingly in the US, where they, you know, 75% of Republican voters think Barack Obama is Muslim. I mean, how is that even possible? Because he's not Muslim, and but but you know, and despite every evidence, there's a the desire to believe that. So sadly, uh, you know. Anyway, uh, you've got me on an interesting <laughs> topic, but this is absolutely the core of it. Yeah, well, we're just getting started, but it is pretty much time to wind up. I think we're just about out of time. Ed Hussein, it's been fascinating chatting with you. Um, your book is, is so much more detail in your book that we managed to cover today, so I'd recommend anyone out there to go and grab a copy. The House of Islam, A Global History, um, is out through Bloomsbury, and Ed also is appearing tonight as part of the Melbourne Writers' Festival down at Ringwood Library, 6.30pm. It's a free session, I believe, but bookings are required, and you can find more information on the Melbourne Writers' Festival website. Uh, Ed, thanks so much for coming in and enjoy your time in Melbourne. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. And if you you. missed the beginning of that conversation, because it has been quite a lengthy one, you can listen back on demand on the RRR website as well and you can kind of catch the whole thing. And We've been speaking for about sort of 25 minutes or so and it's been really great to have you. Thank you very much. Uh, In our uh, post-radiotheon haze. That's right. It's a bit like that. (laughs) See, the computers are like that as well. Yeah, but happy, happy. Uh, It's been a great week at RRR, 10 days or so. And it's been years since we've had Anna Berkey in the house. Um, Anna's with the State Library of Victoria and has been long involved with supporting young people to not only embrace literature but get digitally literate. And now she's getting behind early age entrepreneurs and business startups through the Start Space Initiative at the State Library. It's still being developed, but we wanted to kind of get a sneaky peek at this program and what Anna's up to. Thanks for coming in, Anna. Hi there, Kalia. Hi, Dylan. It's always good to see you. And um, yeah, so tell us about Start Space. It's been kicked off with um, a $2 million uh, grant, I understand. It's a donation, actually. Yeah. Yep. So we've got a, a great philanthropic backer, Christine Christian, who has put her um, um, money behind the idea that it is important to help people who are thinking about setting up a business. And while there's some great services out there, we know that a lot of people who are working um, and, and beginning their businesses, whether they're at the kitchen table, whether it's just an idea, they're spending time in libraries anyway. So let's try and uh, formalise that, bring that together, offer a, 
a better service for people. So if you're thinking of starting up a business, we'll be your first port of call. So, so are we talking all types of businesses or is there a particular leaning towards kind of creative industries and that kind of thing or is it kind of we just are, across the board? It's across the board. So um, when the, the full space opens in a year's time, we will welcome any and all industries into the mix. Um, but we do have a few programs that we're going to be testing out over the next year. So there will be workshops and debates and programs popping up. And one of those is just for the creative industries yet. So on Friday, actually, uh, we are opening applications for a program called Foundry 658, which we've partnered with Acme and Creative Victoria on. Um, and that will take 50 creative industries businesses. So whether you're working in film, fashion, TV, digital publishing, and we want to hear from you um, if you've got an idea that you want to, to get going um, from a business perspective. And that one is aimed at creative That one is industries. particularly aimed at creative industries, but we've got a few more things that we're testing out as well. So um, we're going to have a series of debates as well around the future of business and the future of work. So we've partnered with that startup show um, and the Disruptive Business Network. And the first one of those is on the 10th of September. So we want to try a whole bunch of different workshops and talks and discussions so we can see what people really need to help them get started on their business journey and to keep them going um, and what's going to really work for the community. Now, we have to go back to the, the initial questions about why is the library in this <laughs> space? Because, I mean, I, I suppose when we think about, you know, I know people that have used, say, the NICE scheme or whatever yep. um, that's been supported through governments for a long time when people are, are really changing direction and sometimes have been um, getting unemployment benefits or whatever and they really want to kick off their, their dreams mm. uh, and make their own way or um, you know trade schools and there's I suppose people go to university for these yep. types of things um, what is it that you know people are in libraries as you say researching but is that the only reason why libraries are yeah, workspace. Yeah, workspace as well. Um, there's plenty of people that we can see that are operating businesses out of library spaces. And it'd be great to have some more solid data on that. But part of the joy of being a library is we don't ask you why you're here. <laughs> we just kind of let <laughs> you That's really true. It's not like sign here, tell us what you're doing today. Yeah, yeah and that's really important to be able for people to have that sense of freedom. And that that's what we're kind of going back to. So the State Library of Victoria is going through a really big redevelopment, um, which is about capital works. It's about changing the building. But the reason that we're changing the building is because of high demand. So we've got over 2 million visitors a year, which is more than the British Library in London. It's one of the busiest libraries in the world. Wow. Uh, is it really? That's it really incredible. Is. Yeah, it's really up there. And it's such an interesting, buzzy place. So when I first visited um, 10 years ago, I just was struck by how busy and energetic and how there was such a range of different kinds of people in there and that's still the case and that's growing really fast yeah. so we need some more desks we need some more powerpoints but we also need some new services to help them for the future yeah and i imagine it won't be a few more desks and powerpoints going in with this refurbishment what will start space look like when when the library kind of you know reopens that that area that's being redeveloped so the whole library is being redeveloped pretty library. much yeah. yeah so we'll have 40 percent more space for the public that has been back of house and storage space so we've got these gorgeous gorgeous new galleries that I got a sneak peek of last week that are coming in as new reading rooms um, and then the reading rooms um, that were there for family history and for newspapers they get these glorious new spaces and those spa the spaces they were in on the ground floor will be redeveloped for start space so start space will be able to handle about a hundred and just shy of 180 entrepreneurs at any one time it'll be a free drop-in service where libraries were free and that goes to your point about you know there are, are people offering courses and training out there and they're fantastic and we 
want to be that very early stage to help people before they lay out that money to know what is the right choice for them in terms of the next stage of training. So let's offer the basics and help them negotiate where the next step is. 180 seems like an enormous number, but as you say, people are already using the library for this purpose so you'll be better catering for those patrons already and we're open 11 hours a day so there'll be plenty of toing and froing as well throughout that time um and and it won't it it works because it's not just a space it's because it has that free business training that goes alongside it so you can drop in um as if you're a free start space member and come along to um, you know introductions to finance and cash flow and e-commerce and cybersecurity and marketing and how do you set up an online shop for your business yeah and for a lot of people who just have the the germ of an idea and i guess this is perhaps more the case in in creative industries and the arts and so on that the money side of things how to finance and how to set up a sustainable business might kind of be a thing you think about later, <laughs> not at that yeah. really, really beginning point. So I guess it is really important to make sure people are going in with eyes wide open when, when they do start up. Yeah, and if, if you can ask a few like piercing questions at the start, particularly around who are you setting up the business with, have you got the right skills, do you really get what kind of marketing, what kind of business, what kind of customer you've got? If you can ask some of those questions and have someone help you ask those questions at the very start, it lays some good foundations. We're speaking with Anna Berkey. She's at the State Library of Victoria and uh, the new initiative Start Space, which will be really up and running in the next 12 months um, as the library refurbishes the entire downstairs area to accommodate uh, 180 people at any one time to be running a business out of the State Library I mean, those early stages. But also there's a, another... Um, uh, let's call it a sort of a entrepreneur backer, um, Foundry 658, which has um, been set up in conjunction with ACME and the state government to support creative um, people start up their businesses. But, I mean, you're saying, Anna, that, that we do have a unique library in the state library. Mm. Where are you going to for ideas for how to actually <laughs> fashion this start space? Where Oh, a little of everything. So that what's going on in the boom in co-working spaces, commercial co-working spaces out there, not just in Melbourne, but around the world. And so it's interesting to see what's, you know, we've got some tried and tested methods of what works and what doesn't. The British Library has had a business and IP centre for the last 10 years, um, and they're about to syndicate that all across England. So that's a a growing model. They've had a lot of demand and interest in that. Uh, So we're, we're looking at the library sector. We're looking at the startups and small business landscape. But we're also looking at kind of arts organisations, really what's going on out there. And the Royal Society for the Arts, for example, in, in the UK, which was originally set up as the Royal Society of the Arts, Commerce and Manufacture. And how do those things go together to support a livelihood for artists and ask interesting questions? They're looking at this model as well. It's about how do we support the different disciplines to come together and share their skills and ideas? Because it's at that intersection where those different subject matters come together that we're where the interesting things, the new things start to generate and happen. And we have a system, an education system even, that separates those things and has those as separate subjects. So it's an attempt to try and support people. It's about people and their skills and their ideas. What happens if they meet new people and new skills and new ideas can come from that? So I'm really excited to see what's going to pop up. 
Yeah, me too. And so, and I mean, I, I checked out um, your the, the, like the announcement, mm. the media release, and everything, and it and it did say it was early age entrepreneurs. But is that about actual the age of the person or the age of the idea? The age of the idea. Uh-huh. It's very early stage. So we um, are not there to support commercial businesses. They're already up and running. They're they're going. That's great. We want to have more of those and support more of those in the economy. Um, so how do we help people who might otherwise spend three years? at the kitchen table thinking I've got this idea I've been thinking about it for a while I'm not quite sure what to do with it I'll think about that next weekend or the weekend after (laughs) or two (laughs) years from now or they've started and they're trying to spend evenings and weekends while working full time and juggling all the other different demands of modern life Um, how can we help them by bringing them together with a community of peers and just the right training and some mentorship and some space and some you know dedicated headspace time as well to be able to work on that business to just work out has it got legs or not and that might help shortcut that three-year kitchen table or 20 years idea at the back of your mind and give it a shot gee and so with the with the space when it's developed and i imagine you kind of have an idea around it will there be meeting space or will it be a noisy space or what what it, will there be a door closing it off from the rest of the library how does how all is it going to work yeah. all of those all things above. and you'll have a be allowed coffee which is a fairly Great. important one uh, in this city for sure so um it will be a sealed space as part of the library um you'll get be able to sign up for free membership but then you'll have to swipe your way in so that we know that everyone in that area is uh, on the same path on the same journey um they'll be allowed to talk to one another encouraged if you like so that first ground floor section of the library is going to when we reopen after the the full capital works next year um is going to very much be about collaboration and collaborative working and then the further up you go into the building the more you get to the reading rooms and the the quiet spaces and the reflective spaces so we're zoning the space to be able to allow for both those types of learning and reflection yeah because otherwise people are like shh yeah you know I'm i'm here to do this thing and, mm. <laughs> and that's not us anymore librarians don't don't tend to do that but other members of the public do it to each other all the time yeah, yeah uh, and i should say we're not closing by the way um we're opening a new door on russell street and a new door on latrobe street in just a couple of weeks on the 21st of september and the beautiful new reading rooms will open then and that's when we're going to close the front door swanson street for a year yeah and people might not remember i suppose i've lived in this city long enough to remember when it was a museum and Ooh. that's where it, when i went yeah. to a museum when i was at primary school it was there at the state library um where the state library is now so there are these enormous rooms that haven't ever really been part of the library that have been part of that building all this time so now we're actually starting to see them be used and money spent on refurbishing them and things like this because it is expensive to fix up an old building yeah they're, they're beautiful and we're bringing the original library from 1856 queen's hall above the the front entrance that one is on a two-year renovation so it's just it's going to look gorgeous and to be able to bring those heritage spaces back to the public use is um it's going to be pretty special because i guess people don't really realize i didn't really realize that the state library while it's a whole city block it's 23 separate buildings stuck together i didn't know that either. no idea yeah so it's a it's easy to get lost it's easy (laughs) to get lost behind the scenes as well so this project allows us to sort of refresh that a bit yeah well i actually did get lost on a school excursion in the museum (laughs) once in the dinosaur area i didn't know where everyone else has gone because it was kind of room 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 room. get eaten by a pterodactyl yeah (laughs) (laughs) if only Mm. um and before we let you go anna um you should remind us if people um did um 
kind of prick their ears up at this uh, ability to pitch an idea to Foundry 658. Um, there's a website, six five, um, foundry658.com, um, which is aimed at the creative people with creative ideas or entrepreneurs in that space. Yep. Is that where they go to That's put where an they application? Go. And designers out there, we're just polishing up that website. So in the true spirit of startups, we've got it out there as necessary rather than perfect so let's get it done and then we'll polish it up a little bit but yeah you can head to foundry658.com and if you're just more interested more broadly in start space and the concept of that and they're interested in maybe becoming a member then you can head to that website as well and just send us an email through that contact form that pops up on friday and um we can get back to you on that brilliant thank you so much for coming in all the best and i'm sure we'll um get you in before the big launch of start space to um remind people that it's there that'd be great thanks guys. Uh, anna berkey state library of victoria Start space is what we've been talking about this morning on Triple R. This has been a podcast from 3 Triple R 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.